You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 6th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. And a very good morning to you. We're live from London and you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up, my panellists, Terry Stiasny and Simon Brook, join me in the studio to dissect the week's big stories. Simon, welcome. What have you spotted? Well, uh, quite a lot on the midterms in the US, as you can imagine. So a couple of stories uh, in the New York Times and also the Washington Post, just sort of analysing the the race so far and looking at the prospect for Democrat and Republican candidates. I think the consensus is it's looking pretty uh, dire, really, for Democrats. Um, But obviously, uh, anything can happen in politics these days. So we'll see what goes on, what happens on Tuesday. Um, Also, the Sunday Times has a fascinating piece by Mark Galliotti, uh, Professor Mark Galliotti, the Russia expert, looking at what he describes as the North Koreanization of Russia, grim. So if you think the US political system is in a mess, well, that's the alternative to some extent. And I'm also fascinated by a story about a whale um, in uh, in The Observer. So I'm going to be reading more about that. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. And we will be joined by the political expert, Julie Norman, to talk about the crucial set of elections coming up next week in the US. Plus, Monocle's Guy Delaunay takes us for a spin around the Western Balkans. And Andrew Muller offers his take on the last seven days as well. We learned that chocolatier's Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar and that it will forthwith be banished, which will make this a difficult year for bounty hunters. It's the 6th of November 2022, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. And a very warm welcome to everybody. If you've just tuned in, this is Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. And uh, in the studio today, in a studio that doesn't know whether it's tropical, a, a, a reptile house or a fridge, um, Terry Stiasny and Simon Brook. Good morning. Good morning. Taking shelter from what is clearly a shabby day out in London. <laughs> yes. Um, how's it, how did you get in? You, uh, Mr Brook, you arrived with a very smart umbrella. Always neatly turned out as ever. <laughs> yeah, thank you. But the, the umbrella was an indication of just how awful our weekend has become here in London. It's been absolutely grim, hasn't it? I have to say. Um, so it's the kind of day, I think, really, when you just don't really want to go outside at all, do you? You want to sort of sit at home with a good book or watch the rugby this afternoon or something. But, um, yeah, just look through the window at it and don't go outside. That's my advice. You never struck me as a rugby fan. If it's rainy and there's nothing else to do, then I will watch rugby. <laughs> my God, I hear the sound of a barrel being scraped at the bottom there. Terry, how's it getting for you? I mean, you, we now, with you, are, we're in full winter mode. The, yes. the, the jumper is up <laughs> around the chin. Crazy, <laughs> yes, you, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty bedraggled. Luckily, I didn't have to go too far in the absolute pouring rain this morning. Uh, sort of huge floods and puddles on the, on the roads on the way in. Uh, and yesterday, I spent part of yesterday uh, helping to dig up, doing, working on a sort of community garden project uh, near my, near my house so that was quite quite bedraggling quite wet as well so we were sort of treading things into mud I'm not sure how much Did you feel very much is. as if you were doing good because of the rain? Well but yes I think doing it in the rain makes you feel much more virtuous. So. Okay that's lovely how have our weeks been? Have you, what, what have you been up to Mr Brook? Good well it's been busy which has been nice I actually went to the Cezanne exhibition yesterday at uh, Tate Modern which was uh Great, I have to say, because, you know, sometimes these blockbuster exhibitions, you have to fight your way in, don't you? And I've discovered this thing that when you 
get in through the sort of entrance, it's really busy and you think, oh, why am I doing this, whatever. And then after that, it sort of, it emptied out a bit and it was really nice and uh, and it was an amazing exhibition. If you are in London, because I think it carries on till March or something, free uh, ad there for, for Tate Modern, but it really is, it's a lovely exhibition and then really nice lunch at an Italian restaurant nearby. So that was, today, yesterday was lovely, definitely. All right, well, we'll try not to ruin it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk straight away about um, Tuesday's midterm elections in the United States. Um, there's some, it's all over the papers for starters and we've got the huge issue of who's going to be controlling the House of Representatives in the US Senate during Joe Biden's last two years of his first term as president. Well, I'm delighted to say that Julie Norman, the co-director of the UCL Centre on US Politics, she joins me down the line. A very good morning to you, Julie. Good morning. Very good to have you with us. Um, there's an astonishing article in the New York Times today which talks about the next few days as being an absolute of, moment of political peril for the Democrats. Just sort of like, could you set that the lay of the land for us, please? Sure. So the midterm elections, of course, happen every two years and really determine who will control Congress for the next two years of Biden's presidency. And uh, you, as was alluded to in the intro comments, uh, things are not looking very good for Democrats right now. This is not uncommon. Uh, usually the incumbent or the uh, party who's in power in the presidency does usually tend to lose seats in these midterm elections. That's compounded this year, of course, by inflation, all these worries about the economy and just Biden's overall low approval rating. So Democrats went into this year knowing uh, that they would probably lose the House, where they have just a very small majority right now. And the Senate has really been a toss-up, and it looks like it's going to be uh, neck and neck going into Tuesday with who will control that upper chamber. Um, regardless if it's one or both chambers that go to Republicans, uh, it will you really stymie Biden's agenda for the next two years Overlaying this is also the fact that over 300 uh, candidates on the ballot, that's at both the federal and state levels, are so-called election deniers, people who have questioned or flat out uh, denied the 2020 election results and kind of gotten behind Trump's big lie. So there's a larger concern around just the usual horse race around what this means for democracy more broadly if we have this level of uh, individuals who are, you know, really casting doubt on America's institutions uh, moving into these very crucial roles uh, for 2022, but also for 2024. Just remind us how it's gone wrong for President Biden. Sure. So I would say some things have gone right in a lot of ways. Um, unemployment is very low. Growth was good this last quarter. Uh, the Dobbs decision around abortion in the summer gave Democrats a big bump and a lot of enthusiasm. So it's actually, if, if anything, one could say surprising that Democrats still have uh, as much of a, a good shot as they do. Uh, I, you know, they, they still have a good shot considering all the, the stuff that's happening with the economy, I think, because of these other factors. Um, but with all that said, you know, Biden himself has just not been able to dig himself out from pretty low approval ratings. Those started in summer of 2021, a combination of uh, the economy, of Afghanistan, um, of perhaps kind of ongoing uh, um, uh, intra-party, uh, I would say, tensions and inability to get things through. Since then, they've gotten some of that back, but Biden himself has uh, remained very low in terms of his popularity. At the same time, you have a Republican Party that is still very much under the grip of Donald Trump, um, despite all the hearings, investigations, everything else that we've seen. His popularity is still very strong in the party. Um, he is still the front runner for 2024 if he chooses to run. And so I think that that has galvanized some members of the Republican base and has just created a different kind of challenge for Biden and his presidency. 
Simon, bringing you in on this one, this article in the New York Times has a has a starts off with a very interesting idea, which is a little while ago when Barack Obama was in the White House, they would send Joe Biden out to the battlegrounds that Obama had lost. And Joe Biden was the man who could shore up support and love for the Democrats. And this time around, we only needed to see what happened in Philadelphia yesterday, which was where Biden is lagging and lacking in energy and all around being rather lacklustre. They send out Barack Obama and suddenly everything gets galvanised again because the now Obama is becoming Biden's secret weapon. Very much so. I think uh, I was talking to one Democrat pollster when Biden was first uh, chosen as the uh, the Democrat candidate uh, for president. And uh, he said to me that the problem with Joe Biden is he's a bit like that thing when you a group of you wants to go to the movies and you can't decide what you want to go and see. So you choose something that actually nobody wants to go and see. And that's unfortunately, to some extent, who Biden is. Um, you know, many people would sort of not question his integrity or whatever, but he's just not a great politician. He doesn't really have that charisma. And also, uh, you know, as we've seen you over the last few weeks, months, uh, he really is struggling mentally when it comes to speeches, when it comes to interviews and things. And this, the idea that he might run again in the, for the next race, I think, really is frightening a lot of Democrats. But still, to some extent, they're in that situation they were back the first time around in that they can't choose a candidate who will really unite the party and who has that kind of charisma. And Julie, would you agree with the fact that Biden, with what Simon has just said, with regards to Biden's personal power? Oh, absolutely. And and I do think, again, this this question of if he will run again in 2024 is hovering over a lot of this as well. You know, it's interesting. Biden obviously has a very long political career. He was someone who I think maybe at an earlier stage had a bit more of that charisma. Um, it did prove to be a uniting factor for a big tent Democratic Party in 2020. Um, but I think it's clear that the party needs someone who is uh, a bit more of a leader, um, you know, has a bit more of, of a voice. And and I think even some, again, who would have supported Biden in the past just feel like it might be his time to step aside and uh, and pass the baton, if you will. Of course, um, we're not sure who that would be, too. But it's he has definitely struggled in that regard. Um, I have not seen him live in a while, but many people who have have uh, have just suggested that just that charisma is not there anymore. It's gone. The light has faded, which is such a shame, uh, given the the power and the and the elegance that he had, well, not even sort of five or six years ago. So, so Julie, how easy is it, is it therefore for the Republicans to really exploit this and go to town when they've got Donald Trump out in Pennsylvania as well? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's two very different kinds of uh, political figures at the head of both parties right now. And, uh, you know, Republicans don't hesitate to uh, really drill that home to try and link kind of state level uh, candidates, Democratic candidates to Biden and to his agenda, even if they aren't super aligned. So that has been one of their go to talking points is just to link any Democrat who's on the uh, on the ticket to Biden personally, because they know he's unpopular. I will say, however, though, Emma, you know, for Republicans, the they don't even need to go there in a lot of their commentary and races. I mean, just inflation, just the economy alone has been such a motivating factor for uh, for a lot of voters, I would say, on both sides. But it's, uh, you know, it's been a very easy uh, go-to talking point for Republicans, just the sense of gas prices, food prices, everything people here are facing too, um, that plays right into their hands in this election cycle. Exactly. And Terry, I don't think there is one leader in the world at the moment who isn't completely under all that pressure. 
No, I mean, obviously, you know, anybody facing an election at the moment is facing difficult economic times, big international issues. But I think, you know, some of the points that Julie was making there are really interesting because it's very difficult. I mean, it's pretty much impossible for Biden to actually, if he want, even if he wanted to, to turn around and say now, well, I'm not going to run again at the next election because then in effect you're making yourself um, a lame duck president, whatever the outcome of, of the midterm uh, results are. And so, the, you know, there is still this possibility that it would be Biden versus Trump again in 2024 and neither of the parties are able to actually say at the moment, no, here is our alternative candidate. This is the person that it's going to be instead. And so they're in a weird sort of... Uh, interregnum a sort of slightly difficult situation there where everybody's thinking about that and nobody's able to actually uh, explicitly say it. I, I'm not entirely sure I've got the stomach for that either. <laughs> um, I mean, looking at that, Simon, the, the idea of, you know, we're talking about the US midterms, which is obviously that place halfway through a presidential cycle when the incumbent gets a hammering. This is what always happens inside politics, isn't it? So just explain to us a little bit about what you believe, that why it matters to us outside yeah, very good question. Absolutely. I think the real question that a lot of uh, governments around the world will be asking is, will we see as a result of whatever happens on Tuesday, uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, in the White House again? And obviously that would have massive consequences, especially given the situation in Ukraine. I mean, obviously it was difficult before uh, with his sort of buddying up to President Putin. But but in the situation currently, it would be so much more difficult. Um uh, Trump has said that he will declare his hand probably next week and that will obviously be on the basis of how the Republicans do. My feeling is he probably won't, I don't think he is going to get the nomination, but one thing we can be pretty sure of, whoever does get the nomination will have to have his backing. It's interesting that uh, of the Republican candidates around the country, those who won their primary, 90% of them had Trump's backing. So um, I think he's still a very powerful force. And the question is, is it Ron DeSantis, the uh, the governor from Florida, who, who takes the forward the Trump mandate? But um, I think the hope will be even if there is a kind of Trumpite, Trumpesque uh, president who's in office after Joe Biden, the hope will be on the international stage that they will very much back NATO, that they will uh, not take the sort of maverick approach, uh, if you like, that, that Donald Trump himself did. Because that could be a real rowing back, couldn't it, Julie, that we, we saw as soon as Joe Biden assumed the US presidency of him opening doors really quickly, signing back up to the Paris Climate Agreement, um, you know, re- in, you know, absolutely jumping into that sort of rules-based system that, that Donald Trump was so good at taking a hammer to. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think if we do see it go back to Trump in 2024, we, we can expect that flip-flop on policy. And I think many allies are aware of that. And it's problematized some negotiations and foreign policy initiatives, knowing that uh, the U.S. might might flip back to that kind of mindset. Um, so I I will say that you know the, the context is very different right now with uh, the war in Ukraine, with some of the foreign policy priorities, uh, to the extent that if we're just looking now at 2022, more the immediate future, uh, even if Republicans uh, get the gains that we're expecting them to in Congress, I don't see that uh, stymieing U.S. support for Ukraine, at least in the short term. There's been a lot of concern about that. Uh, I think there's still enough in the Republican Party who are very much on board with that. 
there's broad consensus in the U.S., uh, you know, the population, and just with Biden at the helm of the presidency. So I know there's been some concerns there. 2024, those will be much more overt. But right now, I think we can assume things will, will continue in terms of support for Ukraine anyway. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because there's a, uh, the report in the Washington Post today saying is that the Biden administration is actually encouraging Ukraine to say it's open to talking to, to Russia. Because up until now, Ukraine is saying we're not talking with Russia unless Putin is gone. But apparently this request from the American f- officials is not to try to push Ukraine to the negotiating table, but a recognition that actually countries such as the United States, the electorate will soon grow weary of what's happening in Ukraine because it will start to affect their pockets. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think this is just a political reality that you know the US and also many European uh, states are kind of looking ahead to. And, and it should be said, you know, we know there's been back channel conversation between the US and Russia, you know, throughout all of this. Um, it's become a bit taboo, I think, to even uh, suggest or talk about negotiations or an end game and that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's a little bit um, problematic. You know, if we're being pragmatic about trying to to think about this conflict realistically, uh, to think about what's going to happen in the long run, you know, these kinds of things at least have to be in the conversation. Again, not forcing Ukraine's hand in any kind of way, um, but at least having these discussions starting to be on the table a little bit more. So I think you know Biden's feeling that uh, domestically, but I think that's going to be just coming more naturally at the point that we are in the conflict as well. Julie Norman, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle on Sunday. Goodness me, the thought that we could be doing Biden and Trump again in two years' time. I, I, that's all that's preoccupied my mind for the last couple of hours. Terry, what are your thoughts on that one? Well, it, I mean, it, it just it is striking how, you know, we potentially could still have these two who men who will by then be, you know, very old. I mean, they will be in, you know, in their 80s. They will, whether their health stands up to it, apart from that. I mean, I think one of the really interesting points that Julie made that I just wanted to pick up again, on again, which is really quite frightening, is the number of what she called election deniers currently running for office and just noticing something in the Sunday Times here talking about that. You know, how many candidates still don't accept the result of the 2020 presidential election, that there are people there who, if they are in Congress, will want to stop the investigation into what happened on January the 6th, that there are people who will not accept those results, that there are people who... Uh, will possibly be elected, who will be in charge of the vote counting and so forth in states where Donald Trump particularly was was questioning the outcome. So I think, you know, we've really got to to worry and to be concerned a bit about the, the health of, you know, the f- actual fabric of, of the US democracy. And I think that is really a big worry. You can't put that genie back in the bottle, can you, Simon? Now that when the trust goes, it's impossible to regain it, isn't it? Unless you completely change the way that the world communicates with itself now. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, uh, it, it is this this point that uh, both Julie and Terry were making, the fact that uh, so much of the election machinery, vote counting machine and verification machinery in the states is now under party political control, very often under Republican control. And also questions as well about the number of pe- how people can vote. I mean, having to produce some form of identification to prove who you are sounds perfectly reasonable. But what is that identification and who accepts it? And there are questions there about whether in some cases it's being skewed away from Democrats and towards uh, Republicans. And I think this has been really difficult for the Democrats because they've tried to put this question of uh, uh, the legitimacy of elections and concerns about the state of 
the health of American democracy on the ballot paper, making it an issue. But the problem is, of course, important though that is, with with inflation rocketing and people accusing Biden with his uh, economic packages of being responsible for that, um, it's been very difficult for them to to grab voters' attention with that and has been more focused on the sort of putting food on the table, gas in the car sort of... uh, You've been working in political communications for decades. Who would be a politician now? Well, it's it's a good question. Absolutely, no. Talking to um, a couple of uh, MPs in the UK this week, and also a young woman who was thinking of running or standing for Parliament or whatever. Um, the problem is two things. One is that the incredible abuse you get from on social media, which you never used to, and we've seen in the UK here the horrifying sight of politicians being well murdered. In the case of David Ames, a Conservative MP who was who was stabbed. Uh, so you, who would want to put up with that? And also, to some extent, it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, th- this young f- potential female candidate was saying to me, when I look at the standard of some of the politicians I see in the House of Commons here in the UK, do I really want to be associated with them? Which is awful. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, we do need to have, uh, we do need to do something about this, I'm afraid. What? I don't know. It does also boil down to the issue of communication. I mean, anybody who's seen anything said by Liz Truss out loud in the last couple of months, indicated that this was a woman, regardless of what her intellectual capacities were, was not a natural communicator. There was, let's say there were, you were suddenly working into the world where messages were delivered and landed. We worked into that kind of jargon, parliamentary jargon. Whereas when you saw Obama on stage yesterday, I mean, he's got it when it comes to personal personal um, uh, abilities to get messages across but he yesterday was being very very um sort of like front loading the attack on donald trump now that's arguably something that you never do you never mention your opponent because it gives them the oxygen of publicity but the fact that obama is now saying you know directly attacking donald trump is really a sign that you know i wonder how political wording and communication is changing I think one of the problems actually for Joe Biden, I would just say, it's great having Obama with him, but it's always the danger if you have your charismatic election winning predecessor on stage with you, it, it does make for a rather sort of unhappy comparison. But yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I work with politicians around the world just trying to get them to sound more authentic. And you're absolutely right with Liz Truss. I have video, t- uh, well, not video, I have tapes of her doing interviews and I'm pointing at it and saying, that is how not to do it because you're not <laughs> connecting with uh, the audience. You're spouting these political platitudes it does it doesn't sound remotely authentic you know we do need this connection i mean i i I had a letter in the sunday times a few months ago about this and i I would like to see a politician go on the media and say we made a mistake we tried we made a mistake i'm sorry i've learned we're now going to move on or this is this is how difficult it is to make a decision with limited resources da 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 and the political opponents would jump all over them wouldn't they we know that and the media we'd have a go at them as well but actually, I think a lot of voters would think, yeah, OK, that, that sounds quite reasonable. Would you, would you be more um, willing to accept a, a contrite Liz Truss who said, I really made a mistake. OK, I tanked the British economy. Really sorry. I'll try again better. Well, I think, yeah, certainly given the, the speeches that she made when leaving Downing Street, there was no sense of, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to the members who voted for me. I'm sorry I let you down or, you know, I tried to do this, but I didn't achieve it. And I'm, you know, she was just, you know, no, I was right and everybody else was wrong. And that, that was very strange. And and it's interesting because reading sort of the excerpts from this sort of very hurried biography of, of Liz Truss that has been sort of rushed out, um, it often said, people often seem to say 
speaking to her in person. I have not met her in person, but speaking to her in person, she's quite engaging, she's quite lively. And then she completely loses that quality when put in, in the pub, on the stage. And it's talk, uh, there was one excerpt talking about, you know, the famous sort of pork markets, you know, that is a disgrace speech. And how just she came across as completely wooden and most people wouldn't, that wouldn't have been noticed unless she'd gone on to further, further office. But that, you know, somehow she has le- learned or acquired this very kind of monotonous tone and not wanting to be caught out and not wanting to say anything that could sound wrong. But then that just sounds, you know, just sounds unnatural. It is an astonishing thing because actually when you mentioned that, the first thing I thought was Rishi Sunak. He's incredibly sort of, uh, sort of controlled in the way that he talks. Liz Truss was you know, and people often say, "Why is it the politicians actually sound like this? That they're nice and normal human beings, and then they turn a microphone on and they become an automaton?" I mean, it's, are they that risk averse, Simon? Yeah, to a large extent, I think the uh, political interviews, the process of journalists interviewing politicians and, and other elected officials or other uh, officials anyway, it's broken. You know, as I say, it just just doesn't work. And if you want look uh, at the sort of the ratings of many news programmes, for instance, I think one of the reasons why they're falling is because people are thinking, do I really want to listen to this, uh, the, the, the journalist taking this wisest lying, whatever, lying to me uh, tone? And uh, meanwhile, the politician is just dead batting everything they say. So I would like to see a more kind of, as I say, in inquisitorial, less accusatorial tone to interviews where politicians... I mean, if I hear a politician say, I think the British people... What are you talking about? No normal... (laughs) normal person says that do they you know look tell us about the people you meet in your surgery <clears throat> or on the street when they come up to you because they recognize you and they've got an issue something like that just come across as a normal human being um, and then i think the world would be certainly in political communication so i'm in a much better place any normal human beings out there there's a calling for you in politics uh, what else is uh, happening in the news what have you spotted terry Ah, well, are we are we on to the um, amusing lighter stories at this point? Yes, or we can we, we can go wherever you like. This is Mon- <laughs> we can go to Monocle. This is Monocle on Sunday. We go where we like. Okay, I would like to just to check completely change the subject here, and uh, I want to talk about Valdemir. The spy whale. Havaldemir, the alleged spy whale. We don't know whether he was really a spy, but he, he was found sort of swimming around in, in northern Norway. Uh, when it, you know, What seems to suggest that people called him a spy whale is that he was wearing a harness stamped Equipment of St. Petersburg. Um, and in 2019, he liked to come up and play with Norwegian fishing boats and interact with tourists. Uh, and people were, you know, very excited to see this, this possible whale who was possibly spy. Fishermen, however, in Norway were not not so happy to see him as the, the Observer reports this morning because one of the same things he seemed to be trained to do was he liked to eat, eat salmon, uh, annoy fishermen, wrap ropes around the propellers of their boats and understandably they weren't particularly happy about that and was suggested he'd been trained to do this as some kind of um, sabotage possibly. But the good news for Valdemir and any other rogue spy whales um, is that a British entrepreneur was so touched by his story and they're now trying to raise funds to create the world's first open water whale sanctuary in the Norwegian fjords um, and so they will allow big, uh, allow the whales to come up and, and see people as as he seems to like to do um, but it's, so he's quite domesticated and wants to keep keep him away from the boats and away from the, the fishermen um, but but allow him to interact with humans. It's an inter- Yes, it's an interesting thing because the minute you started talking about the whale sabotaging underwater operations yes. made me mm. think well actually we have James Bond on our hands 
friend. <laughs> well, he could be. He could be. You know, the, the nice, the nice, charming sort of element of it. He could actually secretly be up to all sorts of uh, all sorts of uh, mischief, but that, that we don't know about. He had but... a clip on his harness that you could attach a GoPro to. But but the Russians, um, I think it was in 2019 when uh, this glorious creature with his wonderful smiling face appeared in the world um and i think there was the um the russian i think there was some russian colonel who said look if this really was a, a spy whale do you think we would put property of st petersburg please please return this is the number <laughs> of the russian whale spying department mind you they are quite incompetent aren't they? that's one thing we're seeing <laughs> During this uh, Ukraine crisis, aren't we? And it's the, the glorious thing that apparently it's a beluga whale that's, that's so intelligent you can you can train a whale in the same way that you could train a dog. Really, I must get a whale alongside our dog. <laughs> While I you're watching the rugby and going <laughs> over Liz Truss's videos, you could actually take the whale for what a walk fun. down yeah. the Eastern Road. I think. <laughs> you can in this rain, yeah, absolutely, absolutely horrible. Um, it's like a glorious thing, isn't it? That the the fact that someone has decided that they want to make. Uh, you know, Havaldemir, give him an in, a wonderful space that this is sort of this reserve. But at the moment, are we aware of any other spy whales, or is this is this just Havaldemir's enormous terrain that he can roam freely in? He's just one of the one who's blown his cover. The other ones are sort of <laughs> <laughs> not spying. They're actually better spies, Destroying underwater cables somewhere in the Baltic. They're going to meet in some sort of whale bar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, and so you 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 picked up you picked up Havaldemir, didn't you? I did. I was fascinated. I have to say, I thought, given that how naughty he was and how annoying, he's less James Bond, a bit more Bart Simpson, perhaps, or something. I don't know, but uh, but uh, yeah, it's a happy ending, isn't it? It's wonderful. I remember hearing from one uh, defence expert there was a theory that they were attaching bombs to pigeons. They, I don't know which, uh, some foreign power <laughs> were attaching bombs to pigeons and sending them off. And I tried to uh, stand that story up, which I couldn't, unfortunately. But I have to say, if it's blowing up a pigeon, I'm, I'm quite in favour of that. Actually, oh, I, I don't say. know. <laughs> well, if you ask the pigeon. There are but... pigeons that uh, won medals in the Second World War. Actually, I mean, they're, you know, their pigeons, pigeons were trained to send in messages and they were used. And, and one of the, if you go to Bletchley Park, there's a special room about the pigeons and some of them, after their glorious careers, were, were stuffed and put in Bletchley Park. They did, they did Park stuff. I was going to ask that. That's wonderful. Hang on a minute. <laughs> after, I think, you know, after they died of natural causes. I was about to yeah. say, I mean, that's not <laughs> that's really that much yeah, of a that reward. Was that was yeah. <laughs> Well done. You're jolly good. I'll give you a medal and stuff you. <laughs> One dreams of that. Because sort of, you're working on something like that at the moment, aren't you, I, I am. It's still, you know, slightly sort of under wraps, but it is to do with, yeah, communications and sort of propaganda during the Second World War. But uh, I can't, can't I, so, you know, secrets, secret spy nods that can't, can't all be revealed at the moment. I would have made a terrible spy. <laughs> Clearly you would as well, because yes, you've just I'm told us what you're doing. Yeah. Whoops. I'm here that. I can't tell you this, but I'm on the radio, yeah. so this is what I'm up to. Um, it's just coming up to 9.30 here in London. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, joined by Terry Stiesny and Simon Brook. And let's head to the Western Balkans now for a roundup of what's making news there. I'm delighted to say Guy Delorn is on the line. A very good morning to you, Guy. Morning, Emma, and morning, everyone. I found any spy pigeons where you are? No, but I've kind of got a Balkans equivalent of the Chippendales for you, if you like. Go for it. Yeah, because this was yesterday uh, in North Mitrovica, in North Kosovo, and uh, the entirety of the North Kosovo police force uh, stripped off their uniforms. Um, not for our, you know, titillation or anything like that. Oh. Uh, but uh, yes, I know. And, and believe me, having seen quite a lot of uh, policemen in these parts, they're probably not the kind you'd want to see stripping off their uniforms. And furthermore, luckily, they were wearing things like T-shirts underneath. Uh, but they're all very cheesed off uh, with the authorities in Pristina because the, the police force in 
north Kosovo is predominantly ethnic Serb, and they don't like the fact that the authorities in Pristina, who are predominantly ethnic Albanian, have ordered ethnic Serbs to stop using their Serbian-issued car number plates, and this is causing all sorts of tensions, because uh, Pristina has started to enforce this, and now the police in the north have said, nah, we're not going to. And they decided to demonstrate that by taking their clothes off? They did indeed, uh, which is a novel way of doing it. I mean, we'd all been fearing, those of us who've been following this story, and I know it's gripped great parts of the world, hasn't it, Emma, the the, the tale of uh, Kosovo and Serbia and the number plates, uh, but it has been a real issue uh, in in, in the region, and people have been worried that, you know, shots could be fired, people with guns could get angry. Uh, There's certainly been reports of increased troop movements along the, what Serbia calls the administrative line, and Kosovo calls its border. Um, Drones going in and being shot down uh, by Serbian forces, uh, Kosovo denying they've been sending in drones. All these things are terribly serious. Uh, So when you get policemen stripping off their uniforms. Uh, it does add a little bit of, uh, of humour, at least, to the occasion. It is an astonishing story. You've just mentioned the fact, you know, if, you, if Kosovo serves cannot use Serbian-issued number plates, that sounds like a, you know, it's, it's a bad enough situation to, to talk about here because it clearly sparks division. But what you describe there is something much more sinister and you get very much, so it's one of those things that one tiny little example exposes a much, much deeper division, a much, much more serious situation. And it's a fundamental issue. I mean, Kosovo unilaterally declared its independence from Serbia 14 years ago. And Serbia still doesn't recognise Kosovo's independence. There are plenty of other countries who back Serbia in this. The usual ones which you see cited in news agency reports and Western newspapers are uh, Russia and China. Uh, but it's not just Russia and China. It's five EU member states that don't recognise Kosovo. Uh, countries like Brazil, India, Indonesia. There's a massive number of countries which don't recognise Kosovo, which is very serious for the people who live in Kosovo because it means that they're, they're, if you're ethnic Albanian and you consider Kosovo to be an independent state and sovereign nation. Well, your sovereign nation doesn't have a seat at the UN, for example. Doesn't have a a membership of Interpol would be another example, or the Council of Europe. Uh, You don't have visa-free travel to and from countries of the European Union. Your path towards membership of the European Union is blocked by the fact that five of the member states of the European Union don't recognise you. Ditto NATO. You've got an issue with the members of NATO that don't recognise Kosovo's unilateral declaration of independence. So it's an issue which ill serves everybody and the issue of ethnic Serb people who live in North Kosovo and there's only about 40,000 of them I was reading today they were claiming 50,000 but I don't think it's even that many Uh, but again they've got this very odd existence where they are pulled between Pristina and Belgrade and I was having a little chat last week with with a woman called uh, Jovana Radosavljevic who who runs uh, an NGO in North Mitrovica which is the largest sort of ethnic Serb settlement in North Kosovo and she runs this NGO which is trying to increase ties and understanding between communities. And she says, you know, we're absolutely fed up. Nobody ever asks us what we want. You know, Pristina and Belgrade are barking away at each other. The EU and the US are tearing their hair out, trying to intervene and moderate. Uh, But nobody actually sits down and talks to us and asks us what we want. So you end up with stripping policemen. Guy, we have a little bit of a click on the line. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back and we're going to call you right back and we'll come straight back to you in a moment. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. We've taken a broom to the line, which means that we've cleaned it up in terms of connecting with Guy Delorney. Good morning. Back again, Guy. Hello. I hope I'm a bit less clicky You're a, now. Don't don't start that. <laughs> um, right. Tell us what else is happening where you are. 
So Croatia's biggest company uh, is called Fortinova, and it, uh, you know, it doesn't sound like much, does it? It's one of those made-up names. Uh, but it's the largest uh, food and retail company in Southeast Europe, actually. Um, it used to be called Agricor. Agricor got into a lot of trouble, uh, was on the brink of collapse, and uh, then it was had to be sort of rescued by the government and ended up in the hands of its creditors, the largest of which was Russia's Sparbank, which ended up with 43% of this new company, Fortinova, uh, which operates all these supermarkets across uh, the Western Balkans. So um, if you've ever been to ho- on holiday in Croatia and you've shopped at Konzum or Mercator, uh, then that's that company. Um, or if you've ever bought food in any of the, the places all around Southeast Europe, there's a good chance that um, Fortinova's company's produced it. Um, so Sparebank now says... You know what? We've sold our 43% stake in Fortinova uh, to uh, an investor in the United Arab Emirates, Saif Al-Ketbi. And uh, Fortinova says, you what? We don't know anything about this. And the Croatian government says, "Uh, we don't know anything about this either. And it sounds to us awfully like that might break break, uh, the rules uh, that were brought in by the European Union involving sanctions on Russian companies. Indeed, it is a big problem. So what do we know really what is happening and whether Sberbank has sold its share? Well, Sberbank is insisting that it has. Uh, Croatia said they haven't received any notification. The company Fortinova says they haven't received any uh, notification. Uh, The state attorney's office in Croatia is saying we're ready and standing by uh, to start an investigation. The anti-corruption investigators are already, you know, working away and looking at what's happened here. And it does look awfully like uh, that this is a workaround by Sperbank due to the fact that the UAE doesn't have any sanctions against Russia. It's saying, well, we're well within our rights to sell our stake to an investor in the UAE because they don't sanction us. We've got nice, friendly relations with them and are totally to our 43 percent. We'll follow it closely. Um, We're going to be talking about COP27 in a bit, um, but we are also wildly aware, here at least in the United Kingdom, no one's turning the heating on. Um, So we're all getting very, very much into our woolies and we're all being quite frugal with spending our money on electricity and gas and it looks like that we're not the only ones. Indeed not, uh, because during my time in Belgrade recently, um, I was informed that the Christmas lights there, well, I noticed the Christmas lights weren't on, for starters. And, you know, this is really weird, because infamously, the Christmas lights in Belgrade often run from September through to April. <laughs> this is this is truly the case. And, and th- th- it came to the point where I thought, I've got to do a story about this. So if you go online and you, you search Belgrade Christmas lights BBC, you'll find the little story I did for the BBC, video story, about these never-ending Christmas lights and, and how people feel about them. And some people are a bit cheesed off about them, of course. They could grief. It's ridiculous to have these Christmas lights going on so long. But they did. Um, you know, and it's not just because, you, in essence, you get Christmas and New Year twice in Belgrade because of the Orthodox calendar is slightly different to the uh, regular calendar. Well, you know, it's... Uh, it, they, they just were on for a terribly long time. But this year, they're only going to be on from the 15th of December to the 15th of January. And that's in an effort uh, to reduce energy consumption. It's uh, possibly, is this a silver lining, Simon? I suppose so. I have to say, I, I do like Christmas lights. I'm a bit of a kid about Christmas, so it, it's really nice. But I suppose what what really matters is is priorities, isn't it? Do we heat our homes or put Christmas lights on? But I have to say, if I was a local politician having to make this uh, decision, I'd find it very difficult, I must say. Perhaps, right. perhaps you can turn it down a little bit and have slightly dimmer 
Christmas lights. Actually, that's not the point, really. The whole a few bulbs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think it's right. I hate that as soon as practically Halloween is over, the shops are full of Christmas everything. Christmas lights go on, all of that. It's like, create your Christmas... Yeah, December, maybe you can have your Christmas lights on, but no sooner than that. So Christmas starts mm. too early and, and goes on too oh, long. So I think humbug. 15th of January to... 15th of December to 15th of January is just about right. I, I just do it for the 12 days, probably. I must confess. Put them off on the 6th of January. That's, it's all gone. All I must light. confess, Guy, that if, if I was obliged to celebrate Christmas between September and April. I'm not entirely sure what my waistline would say to me. Uh-huh. And that, that's uh, also, it would be helped by the fact that, of course, you have all these stalls along Kerejma Hylava, which is the, the main pedestrian drag in Belgrade, selling all these lovelies, you know, like chimney cake and the, the, the tooth-rotting sweeties and, uh, and you know, of course, the usual stuff like your goulash and your hot dogs and Wiener schnitzel and all the rest of it. It's uh, and, and, yeah... Um, Kohano vino, you know, the, the mulled wine and the rakia and the, oh my goodness. Does anyone get anything right. done between September and April or are they all sort of off their heads on goulash and wine? <laughs> well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> What's chimney cake? <laughs> oh, you know, it's one of those, uh, it's, I think it's, it's, it's an Austrian or German thing. It's one of those things where the cake looks, you know, sort of cylindrical like a chimney. Um, I can't eat it because I don't get on very well with wheat, but um, um, the people who like it, I'm sure, like it very much. Wheat, wheat speaks very highly of you, Guy. Um, <laughs> let's move to Ljubljana. They've got the same problem, haven't they? Not with wheat. It's with Christmas lights. Yes. And it's, this has become a bit of a ding-dong. And it's, it's quite interesting because it's a local election season in Slovenia. And the mayor of Ljubljana, Zoran Jankovic, has been the mayor of Ljubljana for an awful long time, as in a couple of decades. And he really runs the city. The, you know, the, the city is Zoran Jankovic and Zoran Jankovic is the city sort of situation. And he's insisting that these Christmas lights in Ljubljana are going to go on this year, despite one of the big daily newspapers uh, campaigning uh, for this renowned lighting display which they have, which sort of changes each year, and it's a scientific display, and it's all done according to algorithms and all sorts of malarkey, and it is really very nice, actually. Uh, but he's saying they are going to go on, uh, whether you like it or not, because uh, they only cost about €3,000, because they all run on LEDs. That's about the, the, the amount of power that they would consume over the time that they're on. They don't run from September to April. They run from the start of December through to, yeah, just after Twelfth Night, I think. Now, here's a question. Uh, Sorry, here's a question. The LED lights, obviously very green, obviously very important to have. Not so cosy or pretty. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, they have changed, haven't they, Emma? You can get warm LED lights now, okay. which you didn't used to. You don't have to have the cold LEDs. And I agree, when they, when they first came in the white LED. The guy who invented the white LED is a, is a, is a hero of mine. He was a, a Japanese guy who worked for a, a lighting company uh, in, in Japan. And for years, people have been trying to make the white LED because obviously that would change everything. And it was very, very tricky. And he only came up with the answer in the 1990s. And it's changed everything. So when you live in places like Cambodia, where I used to live, where you don't have mains electricity in a lot of places, having white LEDs is life-changing for a lot of people. So, you know, they, they, you know, they, they, did, they were cold, Emma, but they brought so much warmth to people's lives. Oh, Guy Delaunay, thank you so much for that little bit of extra information. Uh, that was our Gold Balkans correspondent and LED expert. You're listening to Monocle 24. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has been a leading travel destination for so long that it's easy to assume it's a known quantity. Yet it's a country that has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise, a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. Wherever you find yourself in Spain, you won't be far from an expression of the country's deep commitment to its culture, and it's never been easier to soak up its music, art, 
literature and traditions. In Spain, art is present at every turn, and culture is taken seriously. Museums, galleries and cinemas are cherished parts of almost every town and city. Great sculptures prowl the streets and stand watch over the beaches. Vast museums house priceless works by Goya, Velázquez and El Greco. Alongside giants like Picasso, Miro and Dali, new artists are nurtured in galleries that serve their cities with cutting-edge contemporary art. And then there's the music. There's far more to Spain than castanets and flamenco. Spaniards know how to throw a party. Some of them last all summer. With a festival for almost any taste, just book your tickets and get stuck in. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. You're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, and uh, we've just got Simon Brooke and St- Terry Stiasny having a good old rummage in the papers. Terry, where are we going next? Well, I mean, after all that talk of, of Christmas lights and how long they should be, be on for and all the, these are the kind of decisions that everybody is having to make. And of course, you know, looking at the papers, uh, world leaders are assembling in, in Egypt at the moment, um, trying to discuss on a much bigger level um, the COP27 conference in exactly what they should be doing in terms of trying to deal with uh, climate change. And, you know, report, reports in The Observer here are talking particularly, obviously looking at uh, the British government's kind of confusion over what sort of a priority it's giving to to this year's conference. Of course, the UK having been uh, the host at Glasgow the last time the world leaders all met to discuss this, uh, Rishi Sunak has kind of demoted uh, the minister who was in charge of this, uh, Alex Sharma, who is he's still in charge of of the UK's um, COP uh, COP 27 plans, but is no longer a member of the cabinet. Um, and he's told the Guardian uh, this week that you know there could be progress made in Egypt. There have been many headwinds this year. He's saying talking about the primary headwind being Putin's illegal and brutal war in Ukraine, using the, the phrase that the British government kind of regularly uses about that. But he does believe that there has been uh, some progress. Um, but the you know the the government is still arguing amongst itself about exactly kind of what to do about this you know how are they going to find alternative energy you know did they want to do fracking the Liz Truss said they're going to do that now Rishi Sunak says uh, he's not going to do that reimpose his plan reimposing the ban you know what kind of alternative energy sources are we going to be looking at and you know warnings this week also that we've saw about you know that there could be blackouts that we could run out of energy over over the winter and have to uh, tell people to use power at different at different less different times or not use it at at all, um, there seems to you know going into this conference, there seems to be a bit quite a lot of confusion over you know what the line is over what Britain is planning to do in terms of its contribution. And this hand wringing and what do we do and how do we solve it and is it too late? Is something is a, is a sort of a common rhetoric that's not just happening within the United Kingdom. It seems to be the only way that these issues are ever addressed every time COP comes up internationally, doesn't it? So suddenly we discover uh, this this issue, don't we? Um, yeah, it's interesting that that Sunak has made this uh, U-turn, and I think very frustratingly for Labour. Basically, as the the, uh, the, the Observer 
points out today, he's basically just lifted so many of the arguments that his opponent, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party here in the UK, were, were making and, and was making and uh, has turned this into his own sort of uh, call to action, if you like, with regard to climate change. I think the idea of creating, making the UK into a clean energy superpower will resonate with a lot of Tory voters. And I think this is the problem that... Um, Sunak faces that he you know, he knows a lot of his base are really pretty lukewarm, so to speak, on global warming, if that makes sense. Um, not very keen on COP27, which they see as a sort of talking shop. So uh, that's presumably why he originally decided he wouldn't go, then yielded to international pressure to go. But um, yeah, I suppose the thing is, as you say, Emma, this question is how you keep the conversation, the momentum going in between COPs. Do you just have these big international gatherings and then meanwhile the public the politicians forget all about it uh, in between it's a question of how you keep uh, things moving in the meanwhile and actually make some progress ready for the next one and seeing everybody getting on a plane to go to well, Cairo yeah. doesn't really help does and not, it? A, not a sort of budget airline no. plane as well we're talking private jets we're talking you know first class travel aren't we sort of thing so that that is that is always the question as well uh, is it hypocrisy right anything else that you've spotted in the papers uh, I think, well, as Simon, we were going to talk also, you know, all of this, you know, talking about uh, COP27, again, the, you know, this comes down to big power uh, negotiations. Uh, people are talking about, you know, does what will China do? What will the United States do? Those are the big things. Um, and also, of course, you know, the, what's in the background here constantly is uh, the state of the state of Russia, because obviously Russia's actions in Ukraine have affected the whole, the international climate and not just energy. Um, and there is this... Uh, uh, interesting article that I know you know Simon had mentioned earlier about uh, the state of Putin, and there's an argument here in the Sunday Times suggesting Putin is slowly turning Russia into North Korea, um, and really sort of worrying things about how. Uh, Russia's just sort of going back to the old days by the look of it, you know, look, trying to sort of celebrate its celebrating Unity Day, celebrating uh, a, a commemoration of, of the revolution. I mean, people literally even sort of dressing up in costumes from the Second World War um, and to try and sort of suggest this, this atmosphere that, you know, Russia is under threat and to project, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, we've got to draw on what we did in the past, which I think is... You know, it either shows that Putin is is really under pressure, or it shows that he is still potentially quite dangerous, and and possibly both of those. Very much so. Simon. Yes, I was going to say, um, Mark Galliotti, the the writer, uh, talks about yeah the North Koreanization. I suppose what he's saying is it's not just the removal of sort of freedoms and this greater state surveillance we're getting, but also the idea of just like you have in North Korea, keeping the country on this state of paranoid readiness, this constant uh, military footing and, and regarding the rest of the world as a threat. And uh, he points out as well that, you know, that Pyongyang has its Bureau 39, which is the sort of what he describes as the state's ministry of crime, committing crime uh, in foreign countries and stuff. And that's increasingly what uh, Russia might be doing. So, yeah, it just shows we all need to be increasingly vigilant, don't we? Simon and Terry, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, let's hear now for the last few minutes of the programme from Andrew Muller with What We Learned. We learned this week what Russia is really fighting for in Ukraine and apologies to any long-suffering parents presently experiencing symptoms triggered by the music playing behind this bit. 
If it is any consolation, we learn that Russia is broadly on your side, and we learn this via a sensible, thoughtful, measured, and in no way completely unhinged statement from Russian MP Alexander Kinstein. Mr. Kinstein, we learned, is chair of the Duma Committee on Information Policy and Communications and, we must be clear on this, not in any respect a paranoid halfwit. For we learned that Peppa Pig, cheerful, animated, porcine preschooler, is, in fact... The squadron leader of a psychological operations commando unit intent on turning your children gay. Yeah. We turn now to some of Mr. Kinstein's logical, sober, and not even slightly ridiculous statement, as will be voiced by Monocle 24's logical, sober, and not even slightly ridiculous statements desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Peppa Pig, seemingly a very well known cartoon. In one episode, a polar bear is drawing a portrait of her family and says, I live with my mommy and my other mommy. LGBT is nowadays a tool of hybrid war. Thanks as always for taking the time, Fernando. We know you're busy with the hybrid war and whatnot. This, of course, was not the first time we had learned of the chilling and subversive subtexts of Peppa Pig. A couple of months back, Federico Moliconi... Molliconi, culture spokesman of the Brothers of Italy, also invade against Peppa Pig's polar bear neighbours, solemnly, earnestly and not remotely idiotically declaring that we cannot accept this gender indoctrination. And his party are now running the country, which is heartwarming. <laughs> But we should remember, of course, that Peppa Pig did have one staunch ally she could always count on among European conservatives. I was, well, it's, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Who will speak for Peppa Pig now? Mm. I can't wait Interesting. to see where this goes. <laughs> that was a rhetorical question. We don't really care all that much. We also learned this week, and we think this just about works, of a mutiny on the bounty. Ship's company! I'm taking command of this ship. Mr. Fry, I'll have the keys to the arms chest. Not that kind. Indeed, we learned that this particular revolt was not against Lieutenant William Bly of the Royal Navy, later Governor of New South Wales, where he was eventually on the receiving end of another insurrection, but we digress, but against a chocolate-covered coconut confection. We learned that chocolatiers Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research slash pre-Christmas attention-seeking, delete as applicable, which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar, and that it will forthwith be banished from the celebration's mixed chocolate tubs traditionally brought to your yuletide lunch by relatives who did their Christmas shopping at the petrol station. Which will make this a difficult year for bounty hunters. In British politics, meanwhile, 
No, don't. No, no, no. Please don't. Please don't. Don't need to hear it. Oh, God, Andrew, no. We learned of the next step in the glorious career of Matt Hancock, COVID-19 era Secretary of State for Health, one-time star of very arguably the least interesting sex scandal in British political history, now disregarded backbencher. We learned that tending to the concerns of his constituents in West Suffolk is not quite sufficient to fill his days, and that he has accordingly signed on for the next season of tedious reality programme, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. This will, of course, be a radically different milieu for anyone who has come up in British politics to explore, as one of those environments is a merciless bear pit whose wretched inhabitants are compelled to commit serial indignities until such time as a bored or irritated public votes to eject them, and the other is a game show. Champagne satire. We learned, however, that Hancock had reasons for embarking to the badlands of Australia, reasons far, far nobler than the 300 grand he is reported to be trousering for his participation. In a newspaper editorial, Hancock kicked off by declaring that he had not, quote, lost my marbles or had one too many drinks, a clarification traditionally vouchsafed by people who have lost their marbles or had one too many drinks. Hancock insisted that he was somehow doing it for democracy, as will now be read by Monocle24's entirely plausible justifications desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. Politicians like me must go where the people are, particularly those who are politically disengaged. We must wake up and embrace popular culture. Rather than looking down on reality TV, we should see it for what it is, a powerful tool to get our message heard by younger generations. While we will, at this time, rise above, swinging at the powerful tool Freudian slip contained therein, we will not rise above relaying the somewhat equivocal reaction of the deputy chairman of Hancock's own local Conservative Party association, Andy Drummond, which will also be read by Carlotta as she's sitting here anyway. I'm looking forward to him eating a kangaroo's penis. Quote me. (laughs) You can quote me on that. And indeed, we have. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you, Andrew. Simon Brook, will you be looking forward to that? I will, to watch him being tortured. No, I have to say, I, I think um, I, I think it, what's really outrageous is not that he's appearing on this dreadful reality TV show, eating kangaroos' penises and having uh, D-list, it, other Simon. D-list celebs throw bugs at him. What's really outrageous that he was ever health secretary in the first place. Terry? And all outrageous that he is getting a sort of several years' worth of an MP's salary, possibly for spending about three weeks in, in a jungle, or, or as long as the British pol- pol- public votes to keep him in there. We are outraged. My thanks to Terry Stiasny, Simon Brooke, Andrew Muller and all of my guests today, including Guy Delaunay. That's all we have time for today's programme. The many thanks to our producer, Rhys James, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. Enjoy your weekend. Goodbye.